Well, I gave this, this, um, this passage and this sermon uh, attached to it, a title of Memorable Journey. And I guess most of us will have been on a memorable journey of some kind. I think there'll be a memorable journey for Wynne as she uh, goes up in an aeroplane and jumps out of it. That will be something to remember in terms of journeys, I suspect. Back in 2004, there's, there's a particular journey that I remember in relation to, I guess, my walk with God. I was working for a marketing company, and uh, back in 2004, I suppose for about 13 years, I had been running away from the notion of, of becoming a pastor. Back in 1991, I felt God say to me, Andy, that's what, what you're going to be doing. And I kind of said, not lightly. And for 13 years, I pr- pursued a couple of careers. And uh, this was a Monday morning. And on the Sunday before the Monday, some friends had come around, and ostensibly just to talk about a couple of things that we had on our mind. We just wanted to share it with them. It was to do with kind of finances and stuff, funnily enough. And uh, as they talked to us, they talked, and they just shared a whole lot of stuff that was on their heart. And as they were talking, I actually felt myself kind of standing in Jonah's shoes. You know, Jonah, who ran away from God instead of going to Nineveh. And I just had this clear sense in my head that I could run no longer. And I remember, (laughs) they probably thought I wasn't listening to them because I was going through this thing in my head and I just said, Lord, okay, all right. I'm not going to run any longer. I'll do what you're asking me to do. And the memorable journey bit comes because the next morning I got in the car, drove down past Bristol Airport, I was working in Cheddar, and uh, there's a a piece of road on the A38 just past Bristol Airport, begins to go down a hill near Buckham Brewery, and it goes down the road, and I can remember, clear as day, an incredible, unbelievable sense of peace as I drove along that piece of road. Peace that I could almost get a hold of. It was so tangible. And I had no idea what that was all about, other than, I guess, stuff from the night before going through my head. But peace descended upon me in the most incredible way. I got into the office that morning, and my boss said to me, Andy, I need to talk to you. And the long and short of it was, that morning he made me redundant from my job. And I just, I mean, I was kind of shocked, but the peace that I had felt, I knew and sensed and continued to sense, even as I drove home to tell Angela, hey, guess what? I've just been made redundant. But it was a pivotal moment, almost God saying, right, you said that, right, now get on with it. And actually, the the, the course of events over the next few months was extraordinary in being able to then go off to college and to train and to do all that I had. But the peace on that road, on the A38, was a pivotal point in my journey with God. This passage this morning is a, 
a memorable journey, a pivotal point in Saul's life. Far more significant in terms of the life of the the church universal because Saul, who later was, was referred to as Paul, was just such a massive influence in the spread of the church and an incredible influence in how we walk in faith today. It's probably the most famous journey recorded in the Bible, just about, I don't know, certainly the most famous conversion story in the Bible. We kind of refer to it in in common parlance, don't we? Oh, he's had a Damascus Road experience, he's seen the light. We refer to it like that. A moment of significant revelation. I'd love for us just to dwell on the passage a wee bit this morning. Maybe look at three things. I'd like us to look, first of all, at, at, at Saul before he encountered Jesus. Then I'd like us to look at that encounter with Jesus. And then I'd love for us just to look for a moment at Saul and Ananias after Saul's encounter with Jesus. And it kind of splits into those three things. So before Saul's encounter with Jesus, today as we look around in our society, actually there are a number of voices and currents in our society that are strongly anti-Christian strongly would speak against Christianity. There are some who are very outspoken, guys like Richard Dawkins who'd want to to kind of talk about the God delusion. And it can seem quite intimidating, their intellect can seem quite intimidating. Praise God. There are people like John Lennox and Alistair McGrath, superb scientists and Christian apologists who are able to respond with the same level of intellect as people like Dawkins and interact with him on a level that's kind of up here in terms of my understanding, but beautifully articulated. But actually, folk like Dawkins get such a a hearing in the media that people can kind of say, well, yeah, he's right, must be right, because everybody's talking about him. You know, Saul was not just a a, a big guy intellectually, although we think that he probably was very well educated. But his assault was not just intellectual with words, but actually he'd sought the authority of the synagogue and the chief priest. His mission was to imprison to stamp out, even to stone to death, as we saw in chapter 7, those who would follow Jesus. His mission was an aggressive persecution of anyone who followed Jesus. In fact, the language that's, that's used of, of Paul's pursuit, of Saul's pursuit of Christians in, in chapter 8, verse 3, where he talks about destroying the church, only other time that word's used in the Bible, it's used of in Psalm cha- uh, verse, chapter 80, verse 13, where it talks about wild boars destroying a vineyard. That's the kind of ferocity with which Paul was pursuing his mission of stamping out Christianity. 
that's what we pick up on here, just before this encounter. Saul, as he set out from Jerusalem towards Damascus, hundred and some miles north, when he set out, he set out with a mission to destroy. In no way, shape or form did he have any intention of meeting with the Lord Jesus that particular week of his life. Probably would have taken him about a week to walk there. Then, several days into that week-long journey, maybe even the last day, Jesus meets with Saul. What an incredible meeting on that journey. As I said, it's one that we refer to even in today's language of, 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 of a dramatic conversion, a Damascus Road experience. Some of us might even have felt that our conversion, if we've come to follow Jesus, maybe our encounter with Jesus was almost a Damascus Road experience where it was like everything suddenly made sense and, 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 and God was, was really, really, really kind of speaking clearly in our lives as we came to conversion. And that can be really encouraging to hear, can't it, when people talk about those real clear moments of encounter with God. They can be dead encouraging to hear about. But if that wasn't our experience of coming to faith, or if we're waiting for that kind of experience in order to say, well, if Jesus shows himself to me like that, then maybe, just maybe, I'll follow him, then maybe we can feel a little bit kind of cheated because we've not had that experience. I have to say, it wasn't my experience of coming to faith. My, my own experience was a really gradual thing. It wasn't a kind of a big shouting moment. And I know I've sometimes wrestled with, is, is that how it's supposed to be? Really? Couldn't it have been a bit more kind of out there, dazzling and kind of fanfares and stuff? Well, I want to say no, of course. It doesn't have to be like that at all. But let's not dismiss what happened here either. Let's not just say that, that, well, it didn't happen to me like that, so it can't possibly happen. Because actually, by definition, what happened here was a supernatural encounter with the living God. And by definition, a supernatural event is kind of out of the natural. It's out of the ordinary. It's something pretty extraordinary. Luke's account here, and actually... It's referred to two more times in Acts as Saul is recorded to to speak to the people in Jerusalem and then before Agrippa in chapters 22 and 26. The account is of a supernatural encounter. It's almost as if God needed to kind of put Saul under arrest before he went and put other people under arrest. He had to get to him to get his attention. Let's just have a look at it for a minute. First of all, he encounters a light. 
described later in Acts as a light that is brighter than the noonday sun. I mean, today's sun is beautiful. Kind of a watery November sun. Even our brightest, sunniest day in Britain isn't as bright as a bright, sunny day in Israel. And the light that surrounded and engulfed Saul was brighter than the noonday sun. Because he's encountering the glory of the risen Lord Jesus. Jesus, who came to earth, died, rose again, and ascended on high in glory, where he now reigns. Where there is no need for sun, because as Revelation speaks of, the the glory of the Lord will, will give us all the light that we need. That's the kind of light that Paul, Saul, I keep talking Saul and Paul, forgive me. At this moment, he's Saul. That's what he encountered. It resonates with other incredible appearances of God before people where they just couldn't even face the brightness. Moses came down from the mountain. His face was shining because of his encounter with the living God. That's what Saul encounters here. And he is brought to his knees. But it's not just a light. He hears Jesus address him directly. Saul. Saul. Why do you persecute me? Jesus identifies himself with those whom Saul is persecuting. He doesn't say, why are you persecuting those people? He says, why are you persecuting me? Because he identifies, Jesus identifies with the body of Christ, his, his followers. And says, if you're doing that to them, you're doing it to me. Saul feels that directly. Who are you, Lord, he says. Now that word, kuri, kurios, in Greek, could just mean sir, actually. The word that we get kiri from can just mean sir, but it's, it's taken on. That, that name to address the Lord. Who are you, Lord. It's me, Jesus, whom you are persecuting. At that moment, Saul is issued with a direct and massive challenge. As he's brought to his knees in the brightness of the light, as Jesus speaks directly to him. And the challenge is this, Saul, you have got it so badly wrong. This persecution has got to stop. Whatever zeal you've got is not for me. But it's for for stuff that, that has been put in place but has lost The fact that all all the law and all of the Old Testament and all of the prophets, it points to me, to Jesus. 
You've missed the mark, Saul. And then he's given an instruction. Get up and go on into town. Wait for instruction there. I guess actually Saul could have said, you must be joking, I'm on my way. Come on, boys, let's get back to Jerusalem quick. This is not good. He had a choice. But here, God in his grace, he acted in the way he needed to for Saul. Sometimes we think that that actually we know how God needs to act for us and we want to be telling him, well, God, if you do this, then... But we can't be telling God what to do. Sometimes we think of prayer as our way of telling God what to do. I love the illustration, this is a bit of a digression, but I love the illustration of prayer being a little bit like us being in a boat near to the shore. And when we pray, we throw a line out to the shore. And we begin to pull. And what we do in prayer is actually we're pulling ourselves in the boat nearer to the shore, which is God. What we're not doing is pulling the shore to us, which is sometimes how we see prayer, isn't it? That God, you've got to come to me, I'll pull you to me. No, when we pray, we're submitting ourselves into God's hands and we pull ourselves, we draw ourselves towards God. What happened for Saul was what God needed to do for Saul. And at its heart, with all the spectacular surroundings of that encounter, is the same thing that every single one of us needs. And that's a personal encounter with Jesus. It will look different from this, maybe. But it's a personal encounter with Jesus. To recognise that he is alive. Having died for us. We are so fortunate that we have the the narrative of, of scripture to show us who Jesus is and what he did for us. And we need to recognise and accept that Jesus died for you and for me. And that he wants us to turn and walk with him. We really don't need all the blinding lights and the audible voices, even if we feel that we do. And to be fair, if that's what God chooses to do, then bring it on. Let God do what God will do for each one of us. But actually all we need to do is acknowledge Jesus personally. C.S. Lewis author of the Narnia books and all sorts of other brilliant, brilliant literature, great stuff, was very open about the fact that he was a a real sceptic of Christian faith. But as he looked into it and wrestled with it, 
he came to a point of realisation. Let me just read something from a book called Surprised by Joy, one of uh, Lewis's uh, accounts of his walk with God. I became aware, says Lewis, that I was holding something at bay or shutting something out. Or, if you like, that I was wearing some kind of stiff clothing, like like corsets or even a suit of armour, as if I were a lobster. I felt myself being there and then given a free choice at that moment of turning to Jesus. I could open the door or I could keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armour or I could keep it on. Neither choice was presented as a duty. No threat or promise was attached to either. Though I knew that to open the door or to take off the corset meant the incalculable. The choice appeared to be momentous, but it was also strangely unemotional. I was moved by no desires or fears. In a sense, I was not moved by anything. I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. I say I chose, yet it didn't really seem possible to do the opposite. But on the other hand, I was unaware of any motives. You could argue I wasn't a free agent, but I am more inclined to think that this came nearer to being a perfectly free act than most I have ever done. See, C.S. Lewis recognised without fanfare that he needed to turn to Jesus. I guess in one sense, Saul's kind of conversion moment wasn't a flash in the pan. It wasn't something out of the blue. Let's remember that he'd already seen some of Jesus' followers, hadn't he? He'd seen Stephen stoned to death. He'd heard Stephen talk about Jesus. Possible even, although we don't know, he could have even encountered Jesus himself in the temple at some point, but he certainly encountered his followers and their testimony. Here we have Saul coming to a point of having heard other people talk about Jesus and that seeming to really offend him. But here, graciously, God helps him to come to a place where he could choose. What a contrast. What a contrast from how Saul must have left Jerusalem thinking, I'll go and sort them out. I'll go and sort them out. And here he is, staggering into Damascus, led by his companions, blinded, dependent, actually at that moment broken. Incredible. What an encounter. Let's really quickly look at Saul and Ananias. Because actually in in that encounter we just see glimpses of the consequences of his turning to Jesus. It seems to me that there are two consequences for, for Saul and actually for us as we turn to Jesus. 
as he's turned to, to Jesus, he's got a renewed relationship, a new reverence for God. We read that he spends the next three days praying and fasting. And we don't know what he prays about. But I reckon that confession of sin might be up there as he reflected on what had been going on in his life. Probably in in that state of not being able to see, he probably could visualise what happened to Stephen as he prayed, Father, forgive me, please. But I would imagine that there was also worship of the living God, the one that, that appeared to him and blinded him. Worship in those three days. Something that made such an impact on him, a reverence as he prayed and fasted. And then we see as his life went on that his life was changed. His desire for godliness for walking as close as he could to God's way. That became central to his life. Not in a kind of smug, self-satisfied way, but actually constantly Paul refers back to the fact that I am chief of all sinners. I don't deserve what God has done for me. But he's forgiven me, so I'll try and serve him. So there, in that moment, before Ananias even comes in, we get a sense of of Saul's renewed relationship with God. But actually, there's also a renewed relationship with the church. You've got to feel sorry for Ananias, really, haven't you? Just imagine it. Poor old Ananias going about his daily business in Damascus, trying to do his best. And God comes in a vision and says, I want you to go to the bloke who is persecuting everybody and is taking them back to prison. I want you to go and see him and say, here I am. Are you for real, God? Are you sure? He's... He's our arch enemy. But Ananias hears God say, no, go. And he goes. Wow. He goes into the house and he lays his hand upon this man who was a fearsome enemy. And do you notice how he addresses him? Do you notice how he addresses him in verse 17? Brother... Saul. It's gone from arch enemy to brother. Saul. God's told me about your encounter with Jesus. And he's told me to come and pray for you. Pray that you'd be filled with the Holy Spirit and that your eyes would see again. Brother. Saul. That still must have taken guts. Mustn't it? must have taken real courage. But what an encounter Saul had with Ananias and and with, with the church reaching out that hand of family. 
and saying, brother, Saul, putting behind him all the stuff that he's done. Brother, Saul. Two quick things that we can take from this today. First of all, number one, there's hope for us all. There's hope for us all. I don't think there's anybody in this room that has gone about persecuting, killing, seeking to imprison people. God's grace knows no bounds. You need to hear that. Maybe you feel that you are beyond God's reach. Let me tell you, you are not. You are not beyond God's reach. You are not too unworthy to come before the living God and walk with him. Because you see, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't earn what God has done. God did it for us. And Paul, as he wrote to the churches again and again, was so conscious that if if he can save me, he can save anyone. Maybe today you need to hear that and turn to Jesus for the first time. Maybe turn back to him, having walked away from him. You need to turn back, confess and repent and and say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to walk in reverence for you, knowing that you've done it all. You've forgiven me and you want me to be in your kingdom. Perhaps there are folks that you've been praying for for ages that that they would come to faith. Keep going. Keep praying. Keep asking the Lord to touch that person's life. God's grace is great enough. Be encouraged. So there's hope for all of us. There is a little thing that we can look at in Ananias too. What a picture of a follower of Jesus Ananias is. Attentive to God. Obedient. Generous-hearted. Brother. Saul. Humble. And active. God can do whatever he likes in this world, but he chooses Usually, you and me, to be his people in this world. Are you willing to be an Ananias? To be his hands and his feet? To serve him in whatever way may not be quite as daunting as that call for Ananias? Maybe it is daunting for you. But will you serve him in the work of this church? giving of your time, giving of your money, your resources, giving of your gifts and abilities? Are you willing to serve him in your workplace, in your home, 
in your college. Be the person that Jesus made you to be. That those who know you might encounter him through you. Whether you identify with Saul or with Ananias this morning, I want to ask, invite you to ask God to help you, to strengthen you, to enable you this day, to be encouraged by this story that God works in amazing ways, but he works quietly too.